Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. What happened the last time you saw your doctor? First you called, scheduled an appointment, then you made it to the office, found parking, which is always an issue for folks I know, then you got to the office, maybe even on time, traffic, construction, that can derail just about anybody these days. So you check in. One of the first questions you're asked is for your insurance card. Generally, this is to make sure the bills are sent to the right place. Someone at the front desk area confirms that you have coverage and asks for your copay, maybe a little parking validation, and then you wait your turn. Fast forward, maybe you're done, headed to the pharmacy. You hear that your insurance doesn't cover the medicine your doctor prescribed. You call their office, maybe it's after hours. You got to wait till the next day. Then in a few weeks, you get a bill maybe in addition to your copay at the office. And boy, by now, I hope you're better, ready for the next time that you need to be seen. If this sounds familiar, which I bet it does to a lot of people, is that the way it's always going to be? Maybe not the case. Dr. Stephen Kimball, he is the president of the Hawaii Medical Association, a psychiatrist in private practice and at the Queen Emma Clinic, and a member of the Hawaii Health Authority, charged by law to design a universal health care system for Hawaii, is in the studio, along with Mary Ginger. She is an activist promoting single-payer universal health care, both statewide and nationally. And today we're going to talk about an interesting topic. What could health care look like if we had a little different setup than we do right now? We'd like to hear from you and take your calls as well. You can join us at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877 877- Nine four one three six eight nine. Doctor Stephen, Mary, welcome to the Body Show. Yes. Hello. Hello. All right. Well, this is going to be an interesting discussion today. I think everybody at some point in their life, hopefully, uh, has seen their doctor or has had an interaction with the medical system. I hope it's been a positive one. But that's not necessarily the case for everybody. And you know, today we're going to talk about some ways that it could actually change a little bit and how that might be to everybody's advantage. There's several barriers to care that we currently have. We don't even necessarily address the fact that in my little scenario, you have to have insurance to uh, to go get an appointment. But let's think for a minute about it, what it could be, dream scenario, just kind of what is the utopia, how could it look? Dr. Kemble, you've spent a lot of time thinking about this issue. In the perfect world, the little scenario I described Somebody calls, gets an appointment, schedule, shows up, has cards, insurance, etc. How could it look different? Well, um, what we have now is a very complex system uh, based on insurance through employers and then government programs like Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, military health, each one serving a different subset of the population, and many of those are broken down into subsets. Um, U.S. health care costs about 150% of what it costs in the second most expensive system in the world and twice as much as the average of developed countries. And yet they all have universal health care that covers everyone and we don't. We have large numbers of uninsured and underinsured. We have deteriorating coverage and benefits. We have tortuous complexity for both patients and health care providers. And our health care spending is around 18% of the uh, gross domestic product and rising rapidly in an unsustainable way. Um, so that's where we're at. That's where we're at. Now, we have the Affordable Care Act that is currently being implemented, most of which kicks in in January. 
and that keeps the insurance system but reforms it, uh, things like no pre-existing condition exclusions, no lifetime caps on benefits, no cancellation except for fraud, limits on how much of the health care dollar is spent on administration. But Hawaii already has most of these thanks to our prepaid health care act, so it won't help us very much in, in the area of insurance reform. So tell me about the prepaid health care act, because we hear about stuff you can hear about in the news, you can read it in the paper about all of these issues, and everyone's certainly very concerned about what will the Affordable Care Act mean for, for themselves, and certainly here in the islands. What did the prepaid health care act address and how does that apply to how we have some of these things already fixed? Okay, the Prepaid Health Care Act requires anyone working 20 hours a week or more to be offered health insurance through their employer. Uh, it also requires that that insurance be comprehensive, covering 80 to 90% of the cost of health care. And it requires what's called modified community rating, which means that the premiums are spread across the whole population. There's a little bit of variation depending on um, the how much health care a particular employer group is, is using, but it's mostly spread out across the whole population. So it's kind of standardized in a way. It's standardized and the risk is spread so that it's not too expensive if somebody gets seriously ill. Uh, and we've had that in place, and there's no pre-existing condition exclusions already if you have employer-based health insurance in Hawaii. So we've had a lot of the features of the Affordable Care Act in place since the 70s. Now, Mary, you joked a little bit about how, you know, that's one of the reasons why people in Hawaii don't just have one job. Yes. They have two or three. I'm really worried about the younger generation because it seems to be they are stuck for, you know, one job, two jobs, a lot of them, three jobs, just to make ends meet, meaning that they can pay their rent, they can have food, they can have a little bit of money to enjoy. It's tough. So when we talk about the, you know, the Prepaid Care Act, what it was essentially saying is, if you work 20 hours or more, you're offered something. Right. Okay. And that's the reason why when we talk about what might occur in January, we have some of these things in place already. Right. Okay. So... That's kind of, we talked a little bit about where we are. What would be a better place to start? If we had to change or maybe rebuild things again, you know, sometimes I look at that video game Sim City. It always seems interesting. What if you could create a city knowing what you know now about traffic and patterns and all these different mm -hmm. things? What if you could make your own perfect world? I think that might be why that game is, uh, is very, very popular. But uh, if we could create our perfect Sim City for healthcare, what would we do, Dr. Steve? What would this look like? What is sort of the idea here with when we say single payer versus universal versus employee base? What are we really talking about here? If you want to design a healthcare system that, ensure, that assures that if you have any kind of serious or chronic illness, you're going to get the care you need without going bankrupt. Uh, there are a lot of examples from around the world, and there are also some examples from certain communities in this country and they all share various characteristics. One of those is they're universal. Everyone is included. When you exclude a lot of people, you run into a lot of uncontrolled costs that society ends up paying for anyway, but in an out-of-control way and not in the most cost-effective way. So number one would be our SimCity perfect world. I don't, I'm, I'm hoping that's not some kind of trademark, <laughs> but I just like it. I just like seeing the ads. All right, so number one, it has to be universal. So it's going to have to include 
healthy people, sick people, everybody, anybody. Exactly. Okay. What about number two? Uh, I would say no deductibles and copays. And I know there are people that would disagree with me on this, but the countries that have the most cost-effective systems have no deductibles and copays. And there are studies showing that if you apply deductibles and copays, it actually drives the cost of care up, especially for the poor and elderly who have more health problems. And it just deters more necessary care than unnecessary care. You're really better off if there's no barriers to care for people who need it. So universal, no copay, no deductibles. What's the next thing? Prevention? Okay. Personally, I would favor having a system, a single-payer system in which you have uh, pooled financing, which would have to involve government, but the delivery of care remains private and independent. Doctors are still in private practice, solo or group practice, uh, and hospitals are still independent, but the funding source has to to pool the resources of the whole community. So what we're talking about then is having some sort of system where you can still go see a doctor who has their own office, but the amount of funding that's put into this general fund, instead of having it go to various different types of folks, it all goes to one place. Much less middlemen, exactly. Much less yeah. middlemen. You know, we've got hundreds of middlemen throughout the, the country. I would say, you know, two or three big middlemen here in the state. And it's kind of interesting because some people would say we almost do have a similar system with the middlemen now because we don't have a lot of insurance companies represented in the islands. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, that, that's a very good question, and I've actually researched it. Uh, Hawaii, for the commercial market, you know, the employer-based health insurance market, Hawaii has the least competitive commercial market in the, in the country. We have only two major insurers, which are HMSA and Kaiser, covering mm -hmm. about 95% of the market. And yet we have the third lowest family premiums of any state in the country. And the only states with lower premiums are Iowa and Idaho, which have much lower cost of living and much poorer benefits because they don't have our prepaid health care act. So we have the best benefits for the least money of any state in the whole country in the least competitive market. What, yeah. I, like about, what I like about that is that there's two things. First, um, they take a look at cost control, and they also take a look at um, – what what the service really uh, does and does work. So, in other words, there is there wouldn't be a procedure um, that is for health, so that it would be for health and not for um, some other reason. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Stephen Campbell, president of the Hawaii Medical Association and also a member of the Hawaii Health Authority charged with trying to design some type of perfect system. Mm -hmm. And Mary Ginger, and yes. she is a activist promoting single-payer and universal health care. We'd like to hear from you. We talk about health care. We talk about staying healthy. If you have some opinions on what would be the perfect scenario, we'd love to hear them. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Mary, we were talking earlier about prevention, and one of the key elements for people to stay healthy is really to identify what kind of medical concerns they may have 
before they actually have it get out of control. I sort of liken it to somebody saying, you know, I like to get oil changes for my car so then the engine doesn't fall apart. And so I often tell them, well, it's time to come in for your own personal oil change. Let's make Mm -hmm. sure that everything's okay. If there's something that needs a little adjustment, better to do it now than later. How do you feel about prevention? Oh, I think it's the most cheapest and the most healthy thing to do. That whole ounce of prevention is a pound of cure? Yeah. And uh, this is a way of the doctors really knowing their patients by asking questions of diet, exercise, and social network that they have. Because those three factors are primary for having a healthy, happy life. So we talk about going to see your doctor on a prevention aspect. And, you know, Dr. Campbell, tell me, there's not necessarily a primary care doctor for everybody. I mean, we don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough access for some folks. What are some of the barriers in our current system that that prevent folks from accessing these preventative services that may help them in the long run? Well, having no insurance is clearly a barrier. but That's a big one. Uh, and th- we don't have nearly as much underinsurance as other states because of the Prepaid Health Care Act. But if you are an individual and you don't, you're, you're not working 20 hours a week or more and don't have insurance through your employer, then you get very limited coverage with pre-existing condition exclusions, maybe no drug benefits, and then access becomes a serious problem. Um, I've also been concerned with the problem of People have insurance, but it doesn't enable them to get health care, such as uh, is happening with our Medicaid system. And what exactly so, – so you have people who have insurance, but they still can't get health care. Why is that? Okay. Um, I, I want to tell you the story of what's happened with Medicaid in this state. Uh, I came to practice here in 1985. I won't tell you how old I was. And at that time, <laughs> Medicaid was fee-for-service, which all states were at that time. It was a fee-for-service program. Uh, doctors saw patients, sent in the bills, and the government contracted with uh, HMSA to pay the claims, but it was a government-run program. And they didn't know how much it would cost as the year went along. So at the end of the year, they'd often have a shortfall and have to scramble to find money to pay the difference. And there are sometimes delays in doctors getting paid. But there was very little hassle involved with it. You, you could see a patient, you knew what you were going to get paid, and you knew you eventually would get paid. And most doctors took Medicaid. Most doctors starting out in practice took primarily Medicaid uh, until they built up their practice. And then they would try to keep Medicaid at around 25 30% of their practice. But it wasn't that hard to find a doctor who would take Medicaid. This um, was back in the 80s. Back in the 80s to early 90s. In the mid-90s, uh, managed care came in. And um, the, the rationale was, uh, I mean, the legislature didn't like the unpredictability of the Medicaid budget. And they were told by these managed care companies that they would take over managing Medicaid. They would save them money. They would make sure that care was more cost-effective. They would make sure care was coordinated. Uh, they said that there was probably a lot of unnecessary care going on. They would rein that in. I mean, it and, sounds good. It's a lot of promises. And that they would be much more efficient than the state bureaucracy in running Medicaid. So uh, the state contracted with initially five Medicaid plans, and it got whittled down to three, which was HMSA, Kaiser, and Aloha Care. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did, it did allow the state to have a predictable budget. Um, 
and uh, they still had the, uh, the, the chronically disabled and the elderly in a category called aged blind disabled that were paid by fee-for-service Medicaid until 2009 when they converted that population to managed care under two new plans. Um, so now we have five plans again, but they're for separate populations. So fast forward 15 years, let's look at what the outcome of that has been. I'm going to give you a few examples. I had a patient who I've been following for since 1985, actually, one of my original patient groups. He has catatonic schizophrenia, which is a form of schizophrenia with very severe episodes and long periods of remission in between. And uh, as long as everything is stable, he does well for long periods of time. But if he gets sick, he gets really sick, he becomes unable to communicate, unable to eat or drink, and then he gets medically sick also. So he has very expensive complications. A case manager from one of these managed care plans decided he was doing too well and decided he was going to be moved to a lower-level care home than the one he was living in. And he promptly decompensated and ended up in the hospital. He's been in and out of the hospital for the last three months ever since that decision was made by the, the, this case manager who made no attempt to coordinate with me or anyone else. I have another patient who has, is alcoholic. He wanted to detox. I prescribed three days of a very inexpensive generic drug to help him detox, and it was denied by his insurance plan. It took us a month to resolve the denial, and it would have cost him less than $10 for that drug. Uh, I have another patient who is schizophrenic who improved with treatment. He was able to get a job and earn just a lot, enough money to get bumped off of the regular Medicaid program, was put in a program we used to call, call, have called QuestNet that didn't cover drugs, only six doctor visits a year, he couldn't get his prescriptions. He fell apart and has been lost to treatment for the last couple of years since that happened. So, Also, DHS has tried to tighten up eligibility, so they expect people to submit paperwork regularly to show that they're still eligible. And if they miss something, they get bumped off of their, uh, of their welfare payments. And I had a patient last week who the doctor, when they were filling out the compliance with treatment form, mistakenly put 2012 and two, so 2013 the patient was cut off, and I had to talk her out, out of killing herself several times in the last month because of that decision. So these are the, these are the kind of things that I see in about one-third of the patient encounters in Queen Emma Clinic. There's some problem with the system, with the managed care plan, with the pharmacy benefits, with DHS policies that I have to spend my time helping the patient cope with these things that are created by the system. So when we talk about some of the difficulties, you know, we'll take a quick break in, in, a, in a little bit. And then what I want to do is sort of get your feeling on whether or not this system, with this, this, this breakdown in what happened with these particular individuals, was it because we have privatized some of the Medicaid? Was it for another reason? And how can we do it differently? I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we will answer those questions and figure out what else could be a nice way to create our own perfect world of health for everybody, not just those who are young or old, but everybody in between? You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back with Mary Ginger and Dr. Stephen Campbell. Stay with us. Last fall, the U.S. Geological Survey called it epidemic. So how can Kauai coral reef disease be even worse? We'll get an update with biologist, diver, and videographer Terry Lilly. His films have documented the spread of Montiparo White Syndrome since its outbreak more than a year ago. 
Join us tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. For some workers at America's biggest companies, the word overtime is just a cruel joke. I actually had a coming in on a Sunday, and we worked a full day. They told us they were going to pay us double time, which was $16 per hour, and we didn't get that in our paychecks. I'm Kai Rizdal, a special investigation with ProPublica, minimum wage workers in Chicago next time on Marketplace from 8 p.m. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak. Welcome back to The Body Show. We are talking about our current status of health insurance and how we could potentially make this look a little different to be a win-win for everybody. I'm here in the studio with Mary Ginger. She's an activist promoting single-payer universal health care, both statewide and nationally, and also Dr. Stephen Campbell, president of the Hawaii Medical Association, psychiatrist in private practice and also at Queen Emma Clinic, and a member of the Hawaii Health Authority. This is a group charged with designing a universal health care system for the islands. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the breakdown that may have occurred in patient care with, with privatization of Medicaid as an example for how these things happen throughout the entire insurance community. Dr. Campbell, you know, I'm curious, what happened to these folks? What do you think was the result? Was it because we went from the previous system in the 80s and changed it to these different managed care populations? And boy, writing 2012 instead of 2013, like, I think I did that today. So that, I mean, to to think that that could really mess somebody up significantly is a scary thought. All of the examples I gave would not have happened in the former uh, fee-for-service Medicaid program. They were all creations of of the fragmentation into different plans. So having it as a plan that was fee-for-service and not necessarily being fragmented was better for the individuals receiving care. Yeah. I'm not saying fee-for-service is perfect, but having a unified program with consistent rules was much more effective than what we do now. When they introduced competing private plans for Medicaid, it added uh, the cost of multiple administrative bureaucracies, advertising, marketing, lobbying, profit, restricted access networks so you can't go to any doctor you want, incentives to avoid covering or paying for sicker people, and all the health plan administrative costs are duplicated in costs for doctors and hospitals. So it added a lot of expense. We've had declining participation by doctors. Uh, There are three issues with the Medicaid population, which is it's a difficult population. The fees are relatively low. And then there's the hassle factor. It used to be that we had the first two, but there was no hassle. Now we have all three low fees, difficult population, and high hassles, and that has driven doctors to stop taking Medicaid patients. It's become very difficult to find a doctor who will take new Medicaid patients now. About two-thirds of doctors are not taking Medicaid at all, and of the remaining third, a lot of them are only taking certain plans and not others because they don't want to deal with the hassles. Well, and I can tell you, you know, the hassles are not even just with Medicaid. There's hassles with other insurers as well that, you know, you want to prescribe a medicine and you can't or you need prior authorization to do do a test that you really feel is necessary. So, you know, you're right. This is a good example for things that have occurred in other insurance locations as well. We've got a couple of callers on the line. We've got Mike from Kailua. Mike, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. Aloha. What can we do for you today? Well, um, I'm actually intrigued by this observation that a well-regulated duopoly may be the next best thing to a single-payer health care system in terms of controlling costs. I mean, that, 
it's astonishing that we have the least competitive system and the, and the lowest cost system in the United States. And I'm wondering if any healthcare economists have looked at this or if Dr. Kimball has an insight into why this is so effective. It's a really good question, Mike, because, you know, it, it does seem almost like a dichotomy. Here we are with, with less competition here for healthcare insurers. At least, you know, there aren't as many to choose from. And yet it seems like our premiums are lower. And that was one of your points, Dr. Kimball, is, you know, maybe competition isn't necessarily good in this scenario. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Right. Well, this is something that I've, that I've thought a lot about. I wanted to add one more thing about Medicaid. Is ever since managed care was introduced, our Medicaid costs have been rising 3% faster than the national average for 15 years straight. So it hasn't even saved any money. It's cost us money to go to that model. So let's talk about Mike's question. He said, okay. you know. The question is why health insurance is not benefited by competition, which I think is the case. As far as I've been able to determine, competition is uniformly negative effects for the delivery of health care. And there are two things about health care that you need to understand understand this. The first is that a large percent of the population has known health risks. In other words, they have pre-existing conditions, they have risk factors. And insurance is a model, a business model designed to manage risk that was intended for risks that are infrequent, expensive, and unpredictable, like your house burning down from a fire. But if, you have, if you're insuring something where the risks are known, it's like insuring uh, homeowner's insurance for a population where a third of them are arsonists and another third are potential arsonists. Okay, that In sounds that good. In that situation, scary. you don't make money by offering a better plan. You make money by avoiding the arsonists, and that's what health insurance plans try to do. They try to avoid sick people. They try to market to healthy people. They try to push sick people onto somebody else, the other plan, the government, anybody, uh, to anything to avoid covering sick people because that's where their profit is from avoiding sick people. Um, the other thing about health care is it's very complex. Uh, they did a study recently of, that showed about 25% of a primary care practice are patients who don't fit a neat model of having a well-defined disease that's a typical case. They have multiple interacting diseases. They have psychosocial factors that complicate things. They have fuzzy symptoms that don't quite fit a disease category. 25% are complex, and you cannot manage that by a managed care organization setting policy in a central administration. You need a well-trained doctor who can look at the individual situation and make judgments. And the effort to impose managed care plans that interfere with that has only driven costs up and it hasn't improved the quality of care. So getting back to Mike's thought, he felt like it was interesting that we had a duopoly, two people or two major insurers that were providing a lot of the care, and yet we had lower premiums than elsewhere on the mainland. I, I agree that the fewer plans, the better, as far as this goes, especially if the plans have some sense of responsibility to meet the health care needs of the community, which traditionally HMSA and Kaiser have had. They have not gotten to the point that many places have on the mainland where it's all about profit and it's, it's very competitive and the competition is all about avoiding covering sick people. We've had a more responsible insurer group here in Hawaii with, with those two major players. But if it's Cheaper and more cost-effective, the less payers you have, why not go all the way to single payer and, and get the most cost-effective possible system? But I would say a duopoly is the next best. Well, and that's an interesting comment, and thanks, Mike, for calling and bringing that to our attention and, uh, and also noticing that slight difference in what people might think about as far as, you know, less competition equals lower rates. You wouldn't automatically think that in other business models, but 
that's sort of illustrating why healthcare is definitely something that is different than your standard business. Now, we did have a shy caller who mentioned that Kaiser seems to suit all of her needs. She felt like, you know, she does go in, get checked out, get care that's required, and felt like the Kaiser system was a really good model. She always knows what doctors she can see. They're all in a list. They all work for the same group. Is that a model to aspire to? I think that um, Kaiser has a lot to recommend it. I do think there are pros and cons with Kaiser versus independent doctors being paid fee-for-service. HR 676, which is the bill that would create a single-payer health care system, does allow for integrated health care systems like Kaiser within a single-payer system. So you would have a choice of going with a Kaiser system or with the independent doctors. The advantage of an integrated system like Kaiser is that if you have well-defined chronic illnesses, they can develop systems to make sure that you get the, the appropriate monitoring, the preventive care that you need, uh, and, and they, they do a very good job with quality improvement. Where Kaiser is not as good is if you have an unclear diagnosis or a problem that's not straightforward that requires extra time because they do try to pressure their doctors to see a lot of patients in a day. Uh, and if you have a doctor, an independent doctor, who can spend the extra time with you because they're going to get paid feed for service, there might, that might be better for those kind of patients. So it, there are pros and cons, but I would include both in a, in a single-payer system. See, now the question that I want to ask to both of you two that are a doctor, doctors, how much time per patient do you have on a working day? Well, I mean, I think... Part of that depends, Mary, on what the situation is. Some people have a lot of issues that they need to address, and some people just need one specific thing. So, you know, I I think it kind of alludes to what you're suggesting, Dr. Kimball, that you can't answer that question and put everybody into that mold. Some people need more time. Some Mm -hmm. people need less time. Some people need different things on the same day that don't take as much time as others. So, you know, that's a difficult question. I mean, I really think... In my world, it depends on how much they need, and it's really up to me to make that decision. Have them come back if there's something we can't fix on that one particular occasion, but to have that flexibility. I had someone in my office today for over an hour because they had a newly diagnosed, very serious medical condition, and we needed to spend a lot of time time trying to sort through that. So, you know, that doesn't happen every day, but certainly it can happen. I don't know, Dr. Kemble, you're in a different practice, psychiatry a little different than internal medicine. You might have... Um, a certain amount of time that is expected for doing therapy, et cetera. Can you put an average on there? I don't think I really could. Well, psychiatrists until January of this year were paid on a time basis, and you could schedule whatever you thought you needed. If you had a patient who uh, you're just monitoring their medications and they're stable and you don't need much time, you'd schedule them for a 15-minute visit. If you have a patient who you knew uh, was complicated and always had a lot to say, you would schedule a 45-minute visit, uh, and that worked nicely for psychiatry. We have now been converted to the same evaluation and management codes that the the primary care doctors and internists use, Uh, so we have to pay attention to the complexity of the services we're providing and all of this, which brings me to the issue of the administrative burdens uh, that really are eroding the time that doctors get to spend with patients. Um, We have much greater administrative burdens than other countries dealing with the complexities of insurance and now the attempt to manage care, uh, to get data on what doctors are doing so that some central manager can tell us you're doing too much of this or not enough of that, uh, all of which is driving the demand for more and more data, and that adds to the administrative costs. I'm spending an hour more on documentation now than I did a year ago. 
And I'm, you know, I'm not seeing any more patients for that. In fact, I'm probably seeing less. All right. Well, now I'm feeling depressed. I'll give you a holler and we'll (laughs) schedule me 45 (laughs) minutes later because, you know, maybe I'll need that much. All right. We've got a couple more callers. We've got Shelly from Mililani. Shelly, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you for being patient. What have you got to say with us today? Um, Aloha. I'm a family nurse practitioner and a psychiatric clinical nurse specialist. I used to work in the public sector, but I decided to go into private practice so I could spend more time with patients. And I just wanted to echo what Dr. Kimball said about uh, the difficulties with uh, the mental health population. They have a lot of comorbid illnesses. They're very complicated and require a lot of time. Um, I think that our system is not set up um, for these types of patients because uh, they can go into uh, the, the office and try to get compliance for their benefits. They may appear well or like they pass for somebody who's healthy, but they're really not doing so well as far as functioning. Um, I do think we have a very broken system when it comes to Medicaid and um, with the uh, welfare system. Um, also, I just wanted to mention that there are nurse practitioners and other advanced practice nurses who can help out um, with these populations. Well, Shelley, I want to tell you, a few months ago, I had some nurse practitioners on, and they called me out. And they said, you know, even in the beginning of my show, I used to say nothing replaces a visit to your own primary care doctor. And they told me, do not forget about the world of nurse practitioners. So, you know, I changed my little word there. Nothing replaces a visit to your own primary care provider because that includes some of the nurse practitioners and the other providers, including, you know, physician assistants and some of the other folks that sometimes act as primary care providers for folks. And so out of respect for your profession, 100%, you guys are out there, do a fantastic job, and thank God you are. Thank you very much. I actually come from a family of physicians, my grandfather, my uncle, my dad, um, my aunt. So I have a great deal of respect for physicians, and I just would like to urge the community to try to work more together. Um, You're talking about how there's not a lot of competition with the insurance, but there is competition for patients, um, especially in the specialties. And I just think that there's enough patients to go around, especially ones that um, don't have a lot of money and they need a lot of help. I agree. I mean, that's the that's the ironic thing is that there may be competition for certain specialties. In primary care, I've never felt that. Only because I feel like there's more people that need us than we have of us. So you're right. I mean, there may be a sense of competition in other areas that, that I'm not necessarily exposed to. But boy, I got to tell you, and I'm sure you experience the same thing, Dr. Kimball as well. And Mary, you may know some folks in this scenario When was the last time one of your friends said, I've got to find a new primary care doctor. Where do I get one? I've called all these places. Nobody's taking new patients. Nobody's taking Medicaid or Medicare, or they won't take me if I have whatever insurance. And I mean, how often do people have situations where they just can't even find a basic provider? So a common complaint I hear. Always. Right now I'm practicing in psychiatry, um, doing psychotherapy. And there is a real problem with people uh, having access to therapists. Um, I'm not doing primary care right now because I can't do both. But I, I hear that all the time. 
I know it. And so that's one of the things that we're talking about today is, you know, what are some of the reasons why people don't have access to starting off with the basics? Mary, you talked about prevention. And Dr. Kemble, you're talking about people who have advanced psychiatric diagnoses comorbid with medical problems. And sometimes the Mm -hmm. psychiatric problems make the medical problems worse if you can't take your medicine because you have a problem with schizophrenia or you're in a bipolar mania. That is so not going to help your diabetes. And so it's this coordination that we're talking about. And what are some of the barriers that we could remove so that people could stay healthier? And what can we do as providers and what can people do in the community to help instigate this effort to become a much bigger thing than it is now. So I want to thank you, Shelley, for bringing that to our attention. And I agree, we need to have more nurse practitioners. We need to have more primary care providers. And how we identify providers are those people, including yourself, who have the capacity or ability to provide that initial care and coordination for individuals when they're sick, whether it be physically sick or mentally ill. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling us and sharing your thoughts. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak here in the studio with Mary Ginger. She is an advocate and an activist promoting a single-payer system. And Dr. Stephen Campbell, a very well-informed individual, president of the Hawaii Medical Association, also member of the Hawaii Health Authority, and he's charged by law to design a universal health system. We're looking at some of the negatives of what we have right now and what are some potential ways that we could change this. Before we talk any further, I'd like to hear from Kathleen South Kona. I want to hear from our outer islands, and then we're going to talk some more about some other ways to improve the system. Kathleen, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. Aloha, um, my namesake. I live in one of those areas where you cannot get a psychiatrist with Medicaid or Medicare, and I've I've lost. Um, I'm a participant. I'm Medi Medi, as my sister would call it. Medicare and, and Medicaid is my secondary payer, and I've it, it just boggles my mind why they took the the, the state run Medicaid program and split it into two private entities because you lose money. I Kathleen, mean, you are preaching to the Stephen Kemble yeah, choir, that's right. and know, he's shaking his head I, like, I, "Oh my God, I, I know." I'm echoing what you said too, mm-hmm. but and the other thing I want to warn people about is these WellCare and United Healthcare. They try to bundle your Medicare, your Medicaid, and your Part D together. And when I try to explain this to people, I say, just think about it. What if another private entity steps in between you and your insurance company? Somebody's going to lose benefits. Guess what? It's you. And um, I just got a friend out of that situation because he was getting um, B vitamin shots from our primary care physician and who were lucky enough will still see us. Um, and um, they were sending him no pay notices because it had to be prior authorized. And so that's what, that's what you just lose. Oh, oh, Kathleen. I hope he comes up with something great. I'm rooting for you. I hear you. And, you know, I just had an argument with some mainland prior authorization people today. I tried to keep my language very professional while they <laughs> were listening. four times my Medicaid. <laughs> I I would I would agree with you and and we are all echoing your concerns and certainly understand where you're at and hopefully we will work hard to come up with a system that will particularly handle some of the difficult scenarios like you're experiencing where you know here you are in a great system of care and then it's suddenly taken away from you and it's usually done out of cost savings. When, well, uh, yeah, right. And um and, and not cost, cost savings pocketing. for you, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
So, but Shelley mentioned something interesting, and that was that a nurse practitioner can practice psychology. And um, I would like to know how I could find, because I lost my psychologist due to insurance underpayments um, about a year ago. So, um, so other than moving to Mililani, where Shelley called from, <laughs> being in South Kona. Is there, a, um, is there a referral? It's a great question, and I'll have to take a look at that off air and uh, and. Please have uh, stay on the line, and I'll have our sound engineer, David, take your number, and I'll, I'll have to get back to you on that one because I don't know exactly how you would find one. But but I'll, I'll take a look for you, see what I can come up with. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio talking with some folks, some very knowledgeable folks, Mary Ginger, activist promoting single-payer universal health care systems statewide and nationally. Dr. Stephen Kemble is the uh, head of the Stephen Kemble Choir talking about uh, making sure that we have equal access for everybody and president of the Hawaii Medical Association. When we come back, we are going to talk some more about what can we do to make this system work better for everybody. And can what we learned with Medicaid privatization teach us some lessons so that when we build this system again, we do it the right way. We'll be right back. Stay with us. The host of The Amazing Race tells us about a close call that changed his life. I suddenly found myself in the dark underwater in this shipwreck. It was the first time in my life that I really realized that I could die. And we plan a tourist visit to the disputed Palestinian territories in Israel. The first and most intense impression is how welcoming people are. It's on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. The Atherton 2013 concert season begins Saturday, May 4th at 7.30 as Michael Tenenbaum and Stefan Fox share an evening of Celtic-infused soundscapes with guest appearances by saxophonist Randy Wheeler, Stephen Inglis guitar, and Robert Wehrman piano. Tenenbaum plays guitar and Fox plays the enigmatic Santor Cymbalon, and both have collaborated for over a decade sharing a cinematic breath and delicate acoustic instrumental sensitivity in their personal compositions. Reservations at 955-8821 during business hours. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak here in the studio with my experts, Dr. Stephen Campbell, president of the Hawaii Medical Association, and Mary Ginger, and she is an activist promoting a single-payer universal health care system. And before the break, we were hearing from Kathleen in South Kona, uh-oh, I lost my psychiatrist. What do I do? Can I get a nurse practitioner? And before that, we heard from Shelley, unfortunately not living in South Kona, but Mililani saying, hello, I am one, and I'd love to be able to see this system work better for everybody. You know, it seems, Dr. Campbell, that you talked about it earlier. You know, you mentioned a third of the people that you see are having a problem with the system, some sort of issue with their coverage or their medicine or getting the care that, that is so necessary to keep them well and having things deteriorate. You even gave some examples of folks for whom that happened. What are your thoughts for Shelley and, and Kathleen and Kona? Well, I'm, I'm very much in favor of collaborative care and of uh, not just doctors by themselves, but working in teams with uh, nurse practitioners and community care workers uh, who, who can extend the, the physician's office or the clinic out into the community. I'm very much in favor of those things. Um, I also think there there aren't very many nurse practitioners doing psychotherapy here in Hawaii. I, uh, there may be only one or two at this time, so there probably aren't very many options there either right now. But if we can work on teamwork, I think we could extend the availability of care. But I, I do want to talk about some Medicaid systems that I think actually do work better that would give us some models for how we can make things better. 
The first is um, the program I trained in, which was Cambridge Hospital. And they had, the Department of Psychiatry had catchment area responsibilities for all the public sector mental health needs of the cities of Cambridge and Somerville. And uh, they, they ran a state hospital unit. They ran a general hospital inpatient unit. They ran outpatient services. They ran community consultations and community care networks. It was very inter interdisciplinary. And there was a collective responsibility for the whole population. So we felt that whatever problems people had, we had to try to find some way to meet those problems instead of saying, well, we do this kind of psychotherapy. If, if you don't need that, then we can't help you. We had to reach out and find something that worked for all of them. The pay wasn't great, but the morale was very good, and we did a good job, and we dealt with everybody in the community that needed help. We tried to find a way to respond to their needs. Very inter interdisciplinary. So that's um, one system worked well. It worked well. Okay. Uh, another is Community Care of North Carolina, which was uh, developed by uh, groups of primary care doctors in the, the mid to late 80s in North Carolina as an alternative to managed care companies coming in. And they worked out a program with the, the doctors, the hospitals, and North Carolina's Department of Human Services to run Medicaid directly. And it, it was built in increments, but it now covers all of Medicaid for North Carolina. The same idea. They have comprehensive responsibility for a population. They have developed community care networks that deal with all those things that would otherwise fall through the cracks if the patient didn't make it into the doctor's office. You know, failing to take their medicines, uh, transportation problems, being too psychotic or delusional to follow through. They send someone out to the home to work with them to, to, to bring them back into care. And then they use the savings from reduced emergency room and unnecessary hospitalizations to fund those community care networks and to also pay for quality improvement programs, which are designed to assure that the care that's delivered is the most cost-effective possible. They also have high morale. They've been very cost-effective. They have the lowest rate of Medicaid growth of any uh, state in the union right now uh, with that system. Now, we talk about these these beneficial systems in Medicaid, but this could be inclusive of other types of programs. I mean, this doesn't have to be Medicaid. We could we could use this community care concept for yeah. anybody, really. That's my idea. North Carolina is now offering their system to non-Medicaid, you know, state and county employees or uh, employers who want health insurance through their system. They have an integrated delivery system, and they offer that to whoever wants to buy into it. Uh, another example is Rocky Mountain Health Plans in western Colorado. And this is also a primary care-driven program with no uh, outside insurance companies involved. And they, got, uh, they developed commercial insurance for people who are employed. They also got, uh, they developed a Medicare Advantage plan to get the Medicare population, and they got the contract to deliver all the Medicaid for what they're at Mesa County, Colorado. But what they did is they pooled the money from all those sources into one pot, and they pay the doctor the same regardless of where the money came from. So the Medicaid patient and the commercial patient and the Medicare patient all get the same access to care. The doctor is paid the same regardless of where it comes from. And in this sense, it's like Kaiser. Kaiser is the same thing. Once you're in Kaiser, you get the same care regardless of where the source of the money comes from. And Western Colorado has the lowest acute care Medicaid cost in the whole country. All right. So other than moving to Colorado, we've got some work to do, but some great examples of places where it really does work. All right. We've got a couple of callers on the line. We've got Chris from Nuuanu. Chris, welcome to The Body Show. What have you got to share with us today? 
Well, thanks for uh, taking my call. I'm really interested in even global perspective of programs that are working well and the potential for bringing such a, a great concept as you were just describing in Colorado to Hawaii. Would love it. And I'm seeing a big smile on Dr. Campbell's face like, bring it to Hawaii. Let's go global. Let's do it. What do you think, Dr. Campbell? Could it happen? Could it come here? This is exactly what the Hawaii Health Authority has been proposing, that we start with Medicaid, unify it again, develop the integrated network and the community care networks, integrated system, then expand it to state and county employees, retirees, uh, Medicare Advantage plan, and, and, and develop a universal delivery system that would cover everybody just exactly the way that Colorado has done. Pay doctors the same regardless of where the money came from. That's exactly what we would like to do. All right, we're working on it, Chris. We're getting there, step by step. Thanks, Chris. If there's other programs in other countries, you know, we've, many of us have seen evidence of uh, countries that have been really wise around healthcare, and um, I just wondered if those models are also being considered. It's great thought, excellent idea. Other countries that have systems that are maybe not exactly the same, but can do something a little different than we do, maybe even a little bit better. Dr. Campbell, Mary, you got another country in mind? I don't want to move. I'd like to stay in the islands. <laughs> well, England has a, a, a wonderful health system. Germany has a really good health system. Um, a lot of it is applied to the health of the patient's. So we're talking about preventative health. We're talking about programs to stay healthy, to avoid things that you can, diabetes, high blood pressure if possible, Mm -hmm. work on exercise, diet, those sort of interactions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Dr. Kemble, is there another country that fixed this problem? I sort of look at it and say, you know, boy, they've got a good idea over here, and there's another good idea over there, and now Colorado's got a good idea. Has anybody really mastered this? Should we try and be the first ones to try and get on top of this? Well, or maybe are, second to Colorado. Okay. There are, there are quite a few uh, different variations in, in other countries, but they all have universal health care. They all start with the premise that health care is something that everybody's going to encounter. It's a social necessity. It ought to be a human right. Let's start from there and make sure that everyone is included in the system. There are variations in how it's paid for and how it's delivered. Uh, England has what's called socialized medicine, which means that it's government-funded with tax money, but, and the government owns the hospitals and employs the doctors. And this is the same as our VA system, which is socialized medicine. The government owns the hospitals and employs the doctors. Uh, countries like Canada um, have what's called single-payer, where it's government-financed, but the delivery of care is private and independent. Uh, Countries like um, Germany and Japan have employer-based cooperatives that that pool money, but they require that the doctors are paid the same regardless of the source of funding, that the benefits are the same for everybody. So it's much more standardized, it's much more regulated, but they do use employers and they have different plans, uh, and there are some choices involved in the plan, but what you're choosing is only a limited layer of perks. The basic coverage is the same for everybody. Uh, and that's true for every other industrialized country. It's a universal system. Healthcare is a human right. The benefits are the same. Doctors are paid the same. Just some variations in how the financing flows. What I like about Japan the best, I'm glad you uh, said something about Japan, is the normal person sees 
a dog 14 times a year. And it's not because they're sick, but they want to take a look at their health. A normal doc sees a patient 14 times a year? Yep. Wow. And it's cheaper medicine than we have. Well, 14 (laughs) times does seem like a lot. Okay. We've got another caller on the line I want to get a chance to talk with. We've got Carrie from Kailua. Carrie, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, thank you. You know, I was calling because my daughter was recently diagnosed with pretty severe OCD, and we've just run into a lot of hurdles because, number one, there really is no pediatric OCD specialist on island, and number two, we had HMAA. And I had been told by my daughter's psychologist that um, basically HMAA, after 12 visits, they say that this, because OCD is a very severe illness, um, that after, um, that normally this is something that should be covered. But I have been told that um, I guess my daughter's psychologist had a patient who was actively suicidal. And um, despite that, she had to jump through a million hoops in order to get her, um, her other patient insured or covered for more visits. And um, she, she, it, when we spoke, they still hadn't made a decision. And this was kind of going on for a couple months now. And this was with a patient who was actively suicidal. So, you know, I had been told that basically HMAA, the, the bottom line is that they kind of limit you to 12 visits for any kind of mental illness for your lifetime. And thereafter, you're uh, obliged to, I guess, prevent, uh, provide all this justification and documentation in order to get maybe a couple more visits. Now, with the Hawaii Prepaid Health Care Act, I would think that HMAA would have to um, uh, allow for visits like that, especially in the case of something someone who's actively suicidal. But um, I'm, I'm told because they were bought out by a mainland company, they no longer have to really adhere to their rules. And, you know, furthermore, I think the person who makes decisions on behalf of uh, patients with mental illness at HMAA, I've been told that that person is a sports medicine doctor who knows absolutely nothing about psychology or psychiatry. So how does a company like that, how do you hold somebody like that accountable? Is there any government body that actually oversees this type of um, practice and says, you know, this this is not legal according to Hawaii law? All right, Carrie, you brought up a bunch of good issues. Dr. Kemble, tell us, different insurers in the state have different policies on mental health. To your knowledge, is there a way to limit the number of services, or is there always that back-end clause where you could potentially get other services if they're authorized? Well, Hawaii law says that insurers have to cover open-ended benefits for certain specified diagnoses, but OCD is not one of them, and that's major depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. In January, when the affordable care law kicks in, then there should be full parity where they can't have restrictions on mental health benefits that don't apply to other benefits. But in the meantime, you may have a problem. Also, we used to have a set of consumer protection laws for for managed care that said that uh, denials had to be done by uh, someone with the same level of training or higher than, than the person providing the care, so you couldn't have a clerk denying care by a physician. But those laws got gutted last year at the behest of the insurance industry, and nobody even knew about it, and they've, they've been stripped out. I knew about it. 
I knew about it, Dr. Campbell, only because I've had to have arguments with some of these folks. But you're right. I mean, the general average consumer is not aware of those things. Now, I want to talk a little bit because you've mentioned that there are some advantages of having this sort of single payer system. And I want to define exactly what that is. And I want to sort of spend a few moments discussing what those advantages are, not just to the individuals, but doctors, hospitals and businesses. What what do you define as a single payer system and what are the perks? A single-payer system means all funding uh, goes to a single source, which would have to be government, and it would be a combination of, in, of payroll taxes and income taxes. Uh, and since the whole system would cost 30 to 40% less than what we have now, you could split that between the employers and the individuals as far as who got the savings. So it could be cost-neutral to the individual. It would be cheaper what I'm Potentially is cheaper you or You save 30 to 40 percent. You divide that between the individual and the businesses. So okay. each of them is getting a better deal than they're getting now. Uh, with a universal system, especially if it has a set global budget, the incentive is to ensure that everybody gets the care they need in the most cost-effective way and not to avoid covering or caring for the sick. Uh, in order to ensure access to cost-effective care, benefits must be comprehensive with minimal or no co-pays. That's an advantage for people who... actually have a serious illness. All providers would have to participate, and patients would have free choice of whoever they wanted to see and whichever hospital they wanted to go to. So there's more choice with less plans. Healthcare becomes independent of employment status, and this would be a boon for businesses and entrepreneurs. Businesses would not have to deal with the administration of healthcare. If you want to go start your own business and you're the only person in it now, you'd be able to get the same health insurance as anyone else, and it wouldn't be tied to your employment. So Uh, does the employer have anything that he has to pay for the insurance? There would be payroll taxes that would be the employer part, and you would have individual income taxes for the individual part. It all goes into the same fund, which then pays for health care in an egalitarian way. You'd have much lower administrative costs. Uh, Right now, the U.S. is spending about 35% of the health care dollar on administration, and single-payer countries, it's less than 10%. Um, Streamlined administration is much easier and less expensive for providers. A doctor can take the patient's smart card and swipe it at the end of the visit, put in a procedure code, and medical billing would take them five minutes at the end of the day instead of having to hire billers and coders and spend hours sorting through what exactly procedure code they should use and all that kind of thing. Quality improvement and exchange of health information are much easier and more effective under a universal system. You don't have all these places for data to fall through the cracks, and you can do quality improvement much more effectively. There's much less incentive for fraud and abuse, and they're much easier to detect in a universal system. Uh, Right now, it's very easy to hide behind the fact that there's so many different payers. No no one payer knows what any doctor is doing, and if they're committing fraud, they can spread it across different insurance plans. Public programs like Medicaid and Medicare would no longer be the dumping grounds for the sickest, most expensive populations, and a universal risk pool that spread the risk across the whole population would relieve their financial problems and solve their budget problems. Universal health care can remove health care expenses from medical malpractice, workers' compensation, and automobile insurance, reducing both the need to sue and the size of judgments and drastically reducing costs. That's our utopia. All right. I want to declare 
Dr. Kemble, that's your project. Thank you again, Dr. Stephen Kemble, Mary Ginger, for coming on the show with me today. Dr. Kemble is the president of the Hawaii Medical Association. He's got some great ideas, has a list of ways we're going to hopefully have this happen, and we'll hopefully see this come as part of the Hawaii Health Authority. Mary Ginger, activist promoting the same thing statewide and nationally. Our engineer, David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. See me next week. We'll talk some more about ways we can keep you healthy. Monday at 5 on The Body Show.